0: Leah Johnson gets to do what a lot of people only dream of. She writes books for a living. But you know what? It's not all milk and honey.
1: When a thing that you love and are passionate about becomes a thing that you rely on to survive, there is a pressure associated with it that is hard to untangle.
0: Dealing with that is tough, but according to Leah... It's also part of the work. This week on Interstates, Leah Johnson on writing as a job, on making stories for midwestern black girls, and her choice to write commercial fiction. Leah Johnson got her first book deal a month after she finished her creative writing degree. The book that resulted, You Should See Me in a Crown, was a Stonewall honor book, the inaugural Reese's Book Club young adult pick, and it got on the list of Time's 100 best young adult books of all time. Her second book is Rise to the Sun, and it's also a young adult book. Her latest came out on Tuesday, May 2nd. It's called Ellie Engel Saves Herself, and it's not a YA book. It's a middle grade novel. In case you're not a librarian who pays attention to these distinctions, Middle-grade fiction is directed toward 8 to 12-year-olds, whereas the audience for young adult novels is more like 12 to 18. Ellie Engel Saves Herself is about a kid who ends up with special powers just when you least want them, right before starting middle school. I met Leah at her house in Indianapolis, and we talked about her new book, about how when writing is your job, you actually have to get up and do it every day. We talked about money, writing commercial fiction in an MFA program, and how it really feels to join the list of writers whose books have been banned. As we sat down, though, we were chatting about the anti-trans bills that had been passing through the Indiana legislature
1: before you showed up, I was sitting here looking at so Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick recently, like, tweeted this video where um, they were talking about the drag bans. And underneath the tweet, it's so many. Bigoted, like, idiotic responses about how, like, kids shouldn't be exposed to any any illustrations of of gender or performance that are outside of the binary or whatever. And I was just like, i I can't sometimes I can't believe that people are coming at this from a genuine point of view. Like you legitimately believe that it's drag that's going to make a kid queer. Drag. Please, please, that's the thing. I'm like, if you would talk about it, if you would open up a genuine conversation with these children Mm -hmm. about what it means to be a human who exists on a spectrum of gender and sexuality and like all these things, then kids would, it's not gonna make them queer. If they're gonna be queer, they're queer. What it's gonna do is make them happy and healthy and whole. I don't know. I feel like we're we're in the middle of a really aggressive and strange cultural battle right now, the likes of which like I have not seen in my adult life. And so I just I don't know. I feel like the children are the battleground we're fighting on and and we're losing.
0: I was thinking about that too. Like things have changed so much in the past 20 years, I would say. And the fact that there's so much more queer visibility and i think kids are like starting to actually feel like they can talk about how they actually feel and explore different options with who they want to be with or how they want to you know be in the world in relation to gender and sexuality and all that it seems like it's a threat like it's becoming a threat and that is why people are clamping down that's (laughs) that's me trying to find something it's 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 very Bloomington. It's
1: very Bloomington of you. And I love that. I love that. You know what? I think um, because I live up here, I live in Indianapolis, which doesn't seem like it's such a huge difference. It's only, you know, 45 minutes to an hour away. But the climate up here feels so aggressively different than it does when I go back to IU, which is my alma mater, or Sarah Lawrence, which is where I went to grad school. Like those are places where, for the first time in my life, I got the idea that it was okay to maybe be something other than what people had told me I was my entire life. And then I moved back here a couple of years ago and I just, I noticed that like all the stuff that I was running away from still exists here. I was like, well, I was changing. This place was standing still. And so when I go, you know, to the far West side, which is much more rural, which is where I'm from, you know, I, I walk around out there and I'm like, oh, my God, we are frozen in time. Like to you all, this discourse is still theoretical. You know, like to me, when you talk about what it means to be queer or it, it drag shows, which I think is such a ridiculous hill to die on, but whatever, you know, like when we talk about that stuff to them, it's theoretical. It's, it's this like big like behemoth. Oh, it's the the thing lurking around every corner is these fanciful queers. But like, that's my real life. That's my real existence. And so like, I think that out there, especially people are still operating on this whole ideological playground, but this is like my lived experience. And I realized that it's my ability to live freely and safely up here is still very much, at risk because of these people who have never met a queer person before or have, and then can't quite square the idea that the arguments that they're making actually apply to this real human. So I I don't know, I don't know. I, I think we are a threat to them. I think anything that exists outside of the binary is a threat to them. But I also think that this is just another game of political theater. And just like last year, it was critical race theory. This year, it's drag bans. Next year, it'll be another marginalized group whose rights they want to take away. Like, to them, this is all part of a larger scheme to maintain power. But to us, this is our ability to live freely and without fear.
0: So I'm really curious to talk about writing young adult novels in particular, but What I wanted to start with is, did you always want to be a writer?
1: Yeah. So the long and short answer is that growing up, I didn't think that it was possible to be somebody who wrote books professionally. I think at the time, especially because it wasn't so, you didn't have such easy access to the writers you admire. I didn't have any concept of this as a job. And so I knew that I had... pretty narrow set of skills. I was good at performing. I was good at talking my way out of trouble. And I was good at making stuff up. And those all really come together to make a great writer as it turns out. And so I knew that I wanted to tell stories, but I, I couldn't sort of wrap my head around what it would look like to write books. And so I wanted to be a journalist. That was my goal. And so I was really into it in high school. I was like editor in chief of my school paper and then I went to IU to be in the J school, which is now the Media School. I had every intention of going on to work for NPR actually. Like that was my goal is to work in public radio and do politics. And I got to my last year of school and I just I was doing a lot of reporting on race relations which this is around the time of like Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin. And so we were in a flashpoint, I think, in the way we talk about race in this country. And because it's Indiana, there's not that many black reporters, I felt like I was doing a lot of leg work of telling these stories over and over again. And I was good at it, which is why I really leaned into it, but it was costing me a great deal. I was so sad all the time. I was so anxious all the time. The last straw was like, I went to New York to do an internship at the Wall Street Journal and it's the Wall Street Journal. So it was like, you know I got to work with some really cool people but I also was part of a machine that I didn't really believe in. So when I came back to school, I was just like, this isn't gonna work. I'm not gonna be able to do this for the next 30 years of my life. So sort of as a Hail Mary, I was like, let's just go back to the thing that got us to love stories in the first place, which is books. I applied to some MFA programs and got in, and I was on the first thing smoking in New York. That was it.
0: (laughs) So then you're in your MFA program and you're writing, you're doing fiction? Yes. At what point do you realize that you want to do, write young adult fiction? So
1: I knew going into my program that I was going to write YA. It was really clear to me. It felt really resonant with where I was in my life. Yeah, YA was really the only thing I was interested in writing. I know a lot of people go into MFA programs and they're like, "I'm going to write the next great American novel and I want to be the next, you know, I don't even who's fancy. Um, I want to be the next David Foster Wallace." And I was like, "I just want to tell stories about kids falling in love and like, you know, going on adventures the summer before they go to college." And I think part of that was because I was so young. I was one of the youngest people in my program. I was 21 going into my program. But the other part of it was that I was just beginning to navigate my own queerness and think about what that would look like for me in practice. And I I think a lot of straight people, especially, you know, you get all your firsts out in high school. You get to have your first kiss, you get to have your first loves and your first heartbreaks and all this other stuff. But for queer people, a lot of that comes much later. In life, And so because at that point in my life, I was just then beginning to experience like what it feels like to fall in love and what it feels like to get your heart broken and and to actually like hold hands with somebody that you don't feel deeply anxious about holding hands with because, you know, it doesn't quite fit. You know what I mean? And so those feelings, all those experiences felt so closely tied to what it feels like to be 16 again that it felt really natural to write those sorts of stories for that time in my life. And so that's what I did from the moment I got there. And I think a lot of people couldn't quite wrap their head around why I would do that. You know, it's not, I think YA, especially in the era that I started writing it, it was still very much like people were holding on to this idea of the dystopian era they were still thinking about YA being Twilight and the Hunger Games and Divergent, which a hundred percent is what YA is. But also a lot of people in my program believed that there was an inherent value to telling stories that people didn't understand or were not accessible or spoke to a really niche experience and was told in a way that was sort of like, you know, highfalutin, And I just am not interested in that. If I'm gonna tell a story, I wanna tell a story that people can see themselves in. They can find something to hold on to in it. And the day I got there, the assistant director of my program at the time, they make you do an intake interview when you arrive. And she was like, okay, what is it you wanna accomplish in this program? I said, by the time I leave, I want to have an agent. I wanna get a book deal. And I wanna write full time. Those are my goals. I knew what I wanted, okay? That's the thing. I think I think people don't like when somebody can clearly articulate their their dreams, like and not even their dreams, their goals. Like I knew I was gonna do it. I was like, there's no <laughs> to me, this is youthful naivete, to me, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to be published. I was like, Of course I am. <laughs> Why else would I be here? You know what I mean? And she was like well, you know, we don't really, we don't really focus on that so much as we focus on the the craft of writing. And I said, sure. Do I want to be a great writer? Of course I do. When, do I want to know the ins and the outs and the rules and the, and the technicalities? And do I want to engage with the work that's come before me? Sure. But also I want to do this professionally. And so my goals were very specific. And she said, okay, well, what is it you wanna write? And I was like, well, I wanna do YA. And she was like, oh, so you wanna make money? And I was like, yeah, like, <laughs> like why is that some crazy concept? Or like, it makes me less of an artist because I want to do stories that reach a wider audience and also I wanna be paid for it. Like, I don't understand what the disconnect was. And so, okay. Let me use this example. So like black folks, for example, always have to engage with white art. Like in addition to knowing the Toni Morrison's and the Alice Walker's and the James Baldwin's, I also have to know the E.E. Cummings and the Whitman's and the David Foster Wallace's of the world. Whereas white people are not expected to engage with black art in the same way because it's not in the canon. Um, And that's racism, obviously. Um, But I felt similarly when I was in my grad program. I was like, I was doing this high wire act where I was like trying to engage with like white literary fiction that did not speak to my experience or my interests at all, while also trying to write young adult fiction for queer black kids in the Midwest. I was like, I felt like I was on an island. I was like, nobody is really, nobody's really hearing me. Nobody's getting what I'm trying to do here. And it wasn't until my second year when I was like, okay, I'm going to play the game that they want to play. And I'm going to, I'm going to write what I write, but I'm going to do it in a way that feels like highbrow literary fiction and that was when people were like oh my gosh oh wow she can write I could always write you guys just didn't have any respect for commercial fiction and so you weren't hearing it so um it was it was after that point I was like okay I know what I'm dealing with here I know what I'm working with
0: so did you then keep doing that in the program or did you like kind of just do that for a minute to show them you could do it and then work on your actual plan
1: you know what i did both of them so when i had to submit something for workshop it was in that style in that tone and it was a great exercise for me in terms of trying to diversify my own voice as a writer and expand and stretch to see what i was capable of and so i found it really valuable and i was really good at it as it turns out But those were not the books that I wanted to publish. And I I knew that that wasn't what I was gonna end up publishing. And so I got my first book deal a month after I left my program and it was for You Should See Me in a Crown. I had to shift gears pretty rapidly from like, okay, like let's let's go back to the kissing books, Leah. Let's like get back in the zone because we got a job to do now. It was a different ball game for sure, but all the tools that I learned in that program about voice and structure and having a tightly plotted like story, all those things made their way back into You Should See Me in a Crown. My first few years of writing, I was writing a book every six months. Like I was finishing a manuscript like every six months. So I didn't have time for all that. I had to figure out how to get the plot, figure out what the story is, find the character and get them from point A to point B, like in 45,000 words, 60,000 words, whatever. And that's not something that's not something they really shine at in literary fiction. <laughs> no,
0: that's, for sure. that's for sure. All right. Let's take a break. You're listening to an interview with author Leah Johnson. Her first middle-grade novel, Ellie Engel Saves Herself, came out on Tuesday, May 2nd. This is Interstates. When we come back, Leah talks about the relationship between writing and money. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and I'm talking today with author Leah Johnson. Her new book is Ellie Engel Saves Herself. When Leah got her first book deal, the schedule was for her to publish a book a year.
1: And so first book came out in 2020, second book came out in 2021. And in an ideal world, I would have put out a book last year, Mm -hmm. but I didn't because I was burnt out. I didn't have anything left in the tank, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, navigating a global pandemic Mm -hmm. and just like the cost of being a human. It was draining. I was scheduled and had like signed contracts for, I think, four YA novels that were supposed to be published back to back to back. And I got, my second book came out and the reception was not nearly as overwhelming as it was for my first book, which is fine. Sophomore books often go through that. And also we were knee deep in a pandemic. So who was buying books? But I realized after that I was like, man, it took a lot out of me to write that book only for it to come out and like for me to f- not feel like I was being supported by my publisher and feel like it wasn't reaching the audiences that I I wanted it to reach or that I wrote it to reach and so I needed some time to figure out what I wanted to do next. Luckily by then I had like signed with a new agent who had renegotiated a lot of my contracts and had bought me some more time and also had like gotten me paid so that I could afford to not write a book a year. And that was, that was like a godsend. I feel like it gave me the space to really step back and examine what it is I'm trying to do and not for the sake of capitalism, not for the sake of like paying my rent, but for the sake of doing the work because I'm passionate about the work.
0: I feel like it was, I can't remember when you wrote that essay about work, writing and work, that basically where you were talking about like yes. writing is work oh and, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, you know, I was thinking about like, we have these, those of us who dream of being, of writing or mm-hmm. making art or whatever, radio or whatever. It's hard not to imagine that there's a sense of disconnect from the money aspect, right. you know, that you can, that you're going to be able to kind of just create you were writing in that essay about how writing is work for you. And that's a really important thing for people to understand. And at the same time, what you were just saying to me was that you actually needed to also find a different relationship to it. It sounded like,
1: yeah, you know what? I mean, it's worth noting that art and capitalism are intertwined. Mm -hmm. And so there is no relationship to my work that can exist separate from my desire to build a life for myself that is stable. And I think a lot of times we don't consider creative pursuits labor in the way that we consider other jobs labor. And it's especially tough, which is, I think, if I'm thinking of the right essay, I also wrote about the fact that I come from a really humble background of working class people a lot of educators in my family a lot of people who have done manual labor jobs um public servants you know like just there's a lot of that and so i think it was easy for me growing up and also like entering into this business to think oh my needs as a person aren't as important because the work that i'm doing is easier than the work these other people are doing
0: Yeah, right. right. You've got this lucky chance to be creative in your work. And so maybe you shouldn't expect to get paid.
1: Yeah. Oh, and I shouldn't complain about how hard it is, because at least I'm not on an assembly line like my my uncle or, you know, I'm not in a classroom every day getting (laughs) getting cussed out by kids like my brother. And I'm not, you know, and the reality is The work looks very different, and I'm really privileged to be able to do it. And I think it's worth acknowledging that there is a great amount of privilege that comes along with being able to do creative work, but it also is work. And so, figuring out how to prioritize your needs as an artist while also figuring out, like, okay, how can I make enough money to survive while also having a personal life and also having a private life, despite the fact that the lines between the personal and the Public are very blurry for somebody who has a public-facing career. Figuring out how to navigate those things is really difficult, and there's not a guidebook for it. It's not like this is such a common job that people can give you can give you a, a blueprint. And so, yeah, I needed money so I could buy myself time to figure it out. Yeah. There's- shout out to shout out to the mouse. Shout out to the mouse because if it weren't for Disney. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows what I'd be doing right now? My book deal with Disney was worth seven figures. And so when you make a million dollars for a couple books, you can like be comfortable. And I don't shy away from talking about money because I was raised poor. And I think when income inequity is like shrouded in mystery it makes it impossible for us to figure out where we're at and what other people are making and how we can get there and how we can financial plan and all this other stuff so yeah my career is made possible by the fact that I got a huge influx of money which was part strategy and part luck and that bought me a year where I could take some time to be creative without the specter of poverty hanging over my head.
0: I was talking with this friend, mm-hmm. and a friend of his had said, You know, you just wrote some, all you had to do was write some poems and you got this job or whatever, <laughs> whatever. Oh, oh, oh. oh, wow, wow. <laughs> but the point is that, like, it is actual work yeah. to write a book. To write something, to, to do creative work, you actually do have to, like, sit down and struggle and push through and finish things. Yeah.
1: I mean, I have to show up every day the same way anybody else does. I, I get a question a lot when I do school visits from kids who, like, they want to be writers when they grow up. And they're like, how do you deal with the writer's block? And I'm like, well... Just the same way anybody wakes up in the morning and sometimes does not feel motivated to go to work or doesn't feel like they have the wherewithal to like show up as their full self once they get to work. It's the same thing with me. I mean, the difference is I'm my own boss. And so there's nobody behind me being like, yo, pick it up. So, but the but the reality is like, I still have a obligation to show up to the work every day, even when I don't feel well equipped to do it and part of that is because i'm on some pretty tight timelines and other people it's different you have longer between books you get to sort of languish in that state of like not really knowing what you want to do and what you're doing i don't have that so a lot of the work is writing garbage and hoping that in the revision stage I can be better than garbage (laughs) or that my editor is she's coming to work like she's she's firing on all cylinders at all times and so if I'm coming with not my best then there are other people around me who I can rely on who are also coming to work and doing what needs to be done yeah it's tough but I mean it's a job it's just I do the job like over a little keyboard and other people do their jobs out in the world you know what can i say this real quick this you know what honestly if writing was the only part of my job that i had to do i actually feel like this would be a different conversation but this is the job what we're doing now this is work when i go to schools and talk about my books and like meet with kids and sign copies that's work when i go on tour in a few weeks eight cities in 12 days, that's work. When I do Zooms with libraries in Nebraska, that's work. And so social media for me is work now because it's all part of the, the brand. And so it's just different. It's hard to wrap your head around, I think, if it's not part of your life, but I'm always on the clock. I think other people get to clock in and out. I'm always on, that too is like one of those things that I am trying to square, I think, in my relationship with labor. How do I articulate this? When a thing that you love and are passionate about becomes a thing that you rely on to survive, there is a pressure associated with it that is hard to untangle. And so figuring out how to navigate that is
0: tough, but it's also part of the work. I am curious to hear about the shift from writing these, the first two books, which were more like YA to Ellie Engel, which is middle grade. And what did you have to think about differently? Like, I felt like you totally had, you did have that. What did you say? Baby gay panic? Yeah. <laughs> Energy? Yes. Like, that totally came through in Ellie Angle. Yeah. also, really wonderfully. Thank you. But you did have to, you know, it's a, it's a very different book. It f- reads very differently.
1: Huge tonal shift. Exactly.
0: I'll say this about
1: Ellie. I started working on it in spring of 2021, and we were still in quarantine. I was so disillusioned with writing as a career. I sort of was like ready to tap out and go back to the classroom um, because I'm a professor when I'm not writing. And I just did not, I wasn't seeing a way forward. And I was like, I got to work on something that's going to make me feel excited to sit down and write every day again. And so I was like, I'm just going to do a nonsense little story about a queer kid from Indiana who gets superpowers. And the goal was really just to have fun. I was like, I want to be able to play in the work again. Something that is true of romance, even when you're writing for young people, is that there are certain conventions of the genre that you have to adhere to. Otherwise, it's not considered a romance, but it also is not going to check the boxes for the readers. Romance readers are very specific about what they want. And rightfully so. I get it. There's a science to it. And I am a scientist, but I was a little exhausted of trying to hit those same beats at the time. So I just wanted to do something goofy and play around a little bit. And as is the Leah Johnson way, the goofiness gave way to a much more earnest story about a kid trying to understand their identity through super- Powers being sort of an allegory for getting a new life as a queer person when you come out. And I knew really early, I was like, man, this is gonna be a book. I can't, it is not, I can't even, I thought it was just gonna be a little jokey joke. I was gonna just have a good time, just me and my little story. And I like worked on it for a weekend furiously, and I sent the first 30 pages to my agent after two days which never happens. And she was like, okay, I wasn't expecting this. I thought you were working on a YA novel, the one we talked about, but I think we could sell this. Let's take it out next week. And we took it out on proposal the next week, truly. And that was it. Like we, we went to auction with it. And then within two weeks we had the deal for Ellie unbelievable and unprecedented. It has never happened to me like that before. And who knows? I mean, I will say my most recent deal also had a similar sort of story, but you know, who knows if it'll happen again after that. (laughs) That's a long answer to your question, but the, the short answer is there is a playfulness in middle grade that I have, I felt like I was losing when I was writing YA. And that's not to say that YA is not playful, cause it is, but it's just that like the questions 12 year olds are asking are very different than the questions a 17 year old is asking. And I like that space of curiosity without, it's a sort of curiosity without shame, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I really value that in younger readers. My first goal is to make sure that people Black girls in particular who are growing up where I grew up can see themselves and their communities reflected accurately with superpowers. And that is, that is like hard to explain to people sometimes, I think, but I've been really lucky that I get to do it. Okay. I'm interested in being a part of a canon of Midwestern literature that really, really speaks to life in the midwest in a way that is honest about our failures but also the beauty of what it means to be from here i'm really honored that i get to do the work in the way that i do it and do it alongside so many other incredible hoosier writers
0: i do want to talk about book bands and i'm curious like and is there
1: is sure to be banned surely positively. 100%. <laughs> no doubt about
0: it. I'm kind of curious like is there not in terms of what it says about society, but in terms of like you being sort of in this group, does it is there an element of like maybe it feels kind of good?
1: Oh, this is a great question and I'm glad you asked it. Because there is this narrative that getting a book band is a badge of honor and that it in turn results in like higher book sales because people love controversy. So if your book gets banned, a lot of people are gonna like run out and buy it. They're gonna go to Barnes and Noble and they're gonna pick up a copy. And the reality is much more (laughs) insidious. And that's that most people who get books banned, nobody ever hears about. You never see those books again. They go out of print. The authors are not famous. They're mid-list authors, which is like not, not getting huge resources from their publishers. They don't always have huge fan bases. And so the books just disappear and that's it. Mm. And those authors don't always get another shot because our ability to sell books to publishers depends on our ability to get people to buy the books. And so it's a really, really nasty cycle that is much less cool and sexy than I think a lot of people make it seem. My next YA is co-written with a friend of mine named George M. Johnson, who wrote the book All Boys Aren't Blue, which was the second most banned book in the country this year. And George spends so much time talking about the importance of keeping books on shelves and making sure that young people have access to diverse literature and George flies from city to city and they do all this really important work. But sometimes I I think about this quote from Toni Morrison where she says that racism and like talking about race, talking about like why we deserve to be in any given space is a distraction it serves as a distraction from our ability to actually do the work. And luckily, somebody like George, George is an activist, they are energized by this and all that manages to be channeled back into their work. But for people who are less popular than George, people for whom their books get banned and nobody ever talks about them again and they don't get invited to speak on panels and come do events, for those people, It's just a distraction from the work. It just makes it impossible to sit down and write the stories that you know you should be writing, knowing that they're going to be banned one day and nobody's gonna read them and people are gonna call you a groomer or a pedophile or you're gonna get your invitations to schools canceled because they saw you said trans rights matter or whatever on the internet. It's a real nasty, nasty, nefarious side of the business. That's the long answer. The short answer is getting my book banned. I'm in the company of writers that I greatly admire and whose work got me here. It feels trite to say that I stand on the shoulders of giants, but I do. And so being able to look at my book on a list of books that are being considered indecent um, alongside Toni Morrison I mean, if they think Toni Morrison is indecent, come on, I don't stand a chance. So in that way, I do know that my work is being banned because it's doing the work that they so want to silence. And I am proud of that. I'd be more proud if it wasn't getting banned, but but I am proud to know that I'm doing work that scares people.
0: You're writing books that are on some level, especially for those of us who don't necessarily feel scared of reading about queer Black relationships, feel like kind of classic romances. Yes,
1: they are (laughs) classic romances. That's the thing. I am so deeply influenced by all of the greatest rom-coms of our time, which is why if you read You Should See Me in a Crown, it feels like a John Hughes movie because it was written to feel like a John Hughes movie because I wanna be a part of the same canon, the same way we talk about Pretty in Pink, the same way we talk about Never Been Kissed, the same way we talk about 13 going on 30, whatever. Like, I believe that my book is right in line with that. Um Which is why when people slap labels on it, like, you know, to say it's indecent, I'm like, what's indecent about it? Name it. You tell me what exactly is indecent about this. Because when you do, you're going to have to identify that what you're actually talking about is queerness. The very existence of queer people is indecent to you. Because when we talk about banning books, we're not talking about taking books off the shelves. We're talking about the removal of queer people from public life. That is the ultimate goal here. And that's the same thing we're talking about when we talk about drag bans. It's the same thing we're talking about when we say that trans kids should be outed to their parents in schools. What you're talking about is not about protecting children. You want queer people erased. and so. My work is intended to boldly assert that we are not going anywhere. We are your neighbors. We are your teachers. We are your politicians. We are the writers that shape the cultural conversation. We're not getting erased, no matter how many times you try to take our books off the shelves. So, I mean, sure, keep fighting, but There is not a group of people in the world better equipped to take down fascists than marginalized people because we've been doing it for
0: centuries. That's pretty good. That was good. That was good. All right. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Awesome. Okay, now I can stop recording. author Leah Johnson. Her latest book, Ellie Engel Saves Herself, came out on May 2nd. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up, but first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luanne Johnson, Jacqueline, Nur, Sam Schamenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey sad to say we're saying goodbye to Yane Sanchez-Lopez, who's moving on to a new position on campus. Yane, I'm immensely grateful for all the -the behind-the-scenes work you've done, and I wish you the best in your new projects. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time for some found sound. was fourth and fifth graders eating lunch, recorded by Kate Young. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening.